He says, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fall, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will, re- I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. So what he did was he wrote it, and he turned it over to someone, uh, and then apparently he played a harp or something along with it. And, uh, so anyway, I am not teaching Habakkuk tonight. Uh, I'm going to be in Psalm 42. And Psalm 42 has been a refuge to many people who have gone through afflictions and, and pain. It has a way of bringing us back to, the, to right thinking, uh, back grounding us in faith and all of that. Um, I can't teach a group of guys for biblical counseling without visiting Psalm 42 because of its value in the context of counseling and how we must um, constantly be on ourselves uh, because we know ourselves well and we, we quickly and easily go astray. And we think without a clear head. We stop thinking biblically because of circumstances. And uh, we have to have a chat with ourselves. We have to sit ourselves down and uh, say, what are you thinking? And uh, no, it's, it's over here where you need to be thinking and looking. So anyway, why don't you please stand? I'll read God's word to you. As, as uh, usually I read out of the New King James Version. And by the way, that is not... Uh, The only version, I don't believe in an inspired version. Um, It's just the version that I've chosen. Read the whole psalm to you. To the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, While they continually say to me, Where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill of Mizar. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And in the night, his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Father, we thank you for your word. And there is a lot of craziness that goes inside our hearts and minds, especially when life is not ideal for us. 
And so, Lord, I thank you for the, the words of the psalmist, who is certainly experiencing troublesome times. I thank you that he has, through maturity, he's trained himself to pull his eyes away from his pain and his suffering, and he looks to you to ground him, to give him peace and security. So, Lord, I pray that you would teach us from this text tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, be seated, please. So, as you could tell, obviously, it's a song of sorrow. It's a, it's a psalm of desperation. But as I said at the beginning, it's also a psalm of self-correction. Self-correction. He, in the Hebrew, he's, he's giving himself imperatives. Uh, he's commanding himself. And uh, how many guys could use a little of that to shake yourself when... Uh, you're not thinking rightly about life. Yeah. And, you know, perhaps no other psalm in the treasury of hymns speaks more directly to the brokenhearted. And, and, and I think it's because the author identifies with the brokenhearted more than uh, other authors do. But by the way, he deals with his own pain and the doubts that he, he has. And it's funny, you know, in this psalm, there, there's just one person but it almost feels like there's two. And he doesn't have a multi he's not multi-personality disorder. Uh, he's just like you and me, okay? He has a, there's a wrestling match going on inside of him, two different parts of his humanity, uh, same struggles we have, some with uh, greater success than others. But it's not the struggle between his sin nature and the new man, as we see in Romans chapter seven with Paul. Uh, it's with that part of him that is emotional and that part of him that is rational. Okay. Um, and the struggle is all about who is going to govern his life, his thinking, and his course of action. All right. It's all about that. It's, like, it's sort of like king of the hill. And um, yeah, who's going to govern his life? Will he be led by his soul, his heart? And those two are equivalent here. And... Um, the heart is, which is so vulnerable to circumstances and feelings, or by his spirit, which lends itself to faith and hope and reason. You know, the heart, um, and I think that I've experienced enough in my own life and enough in counseling, that the heart is like a weather vane. And some of the younger people are like, what's that? <laughs> so sometimes on houses, oftentimes on barns, there is a, a farm animal of some kind cut out in a tin or something, and there's an arrow right through it, uh, or a part of it, rather, not literally. And uh, whichever direction the wind blows is where the weather vane points. It's like the heart. It's, it's steered by the wind, yielding to its influence, uh, regardless of the direction it blows. Uh, that's the heart. It yields easily to circumstances, whatever they are. Uh, it's bending to its will. It's giving in to its influence. And unless the heart is steered, by a greater force, circumstances will dictate the way it feels and the way that it interprets reality. But the spirit of man, as it, of course, matures in Christ, is prone to look to God in the midst of circumstances, which gives us, the person, a brighter outlook without ignoring the circumstances. It doesn't make us indifferent to them. It actually makes us more intelligent in them. It, makes us, uh, it better equips us to deal with chaos in this life. So I think the, the hymn here, the author, teaches us how to live in reality as things around us are completely out of our control. 
whether it be some kind of financial issue, whether it be um, a child who is sick, um, or a spouse, or whatever. And um, we learn how to do it with faith. Look at verse 1. Get some of these facts out of the way first. He says, To the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. And then he begins, As the deer pants for the water brooks, uh, so pants my soul for you, O God. Of course, before we ate tonight, uh, we sang the Maranatha song as the deer. Uh, it was inspired by this psalm. And today I was kind of looking over those words again, which I don't know why I can't remember songs um, or names, but I can remember passages of Scripture just fine. I don't know what the difference is. But um, the author seems, even though he's not writing verbatim the psalm, he seems to have a pretty good grip on what the author was trying to get at. And then he's throwing other biblical truths into it to finish the song. Be that as it may, we, we again have this chief musician, whoever he was. He might have been Haman, as uh, was the case with David, uh, or it seems from First Chronicles. And then, but rather than we've, all the hymns that we've talked about so far have been uh, written by David, but this one is, as it says, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. Now they may not have actually written, uh, they, they may not have actually written the text here. Uh, they may have just been the composers, because the experience that's related in the psalm is just one person. It's just one person. Uh, who are the sons of Korah? <laughs> they were Levites uh, from the uh, his son Kohath. That's Exodus six eighteen, and then Kohath had a grandson named. Korah, that's Exodus 6, 21, and we all know this, the story of, of the, the rebellion of Korah, uh, a sad story. Uh, he had challenged Moses and Aaron, who were both uh, in different departments, we might say, uh, the Lord's anointed. We know that in the rebellion of Korah, everyone who sided with him died, but apparently uh, a number of his sons had separated themselves from their father, good choice. And uh, they were spared, Numbers 26, 11. And then the, the children the, the, and the great-grandchildren or whatever of these boys uh, d- had lived until the time of David, or, or his ancestors were alive then. Um, and David had appointed them as doorkeepers and singers in the, in the tabernacle. And then later, they become singers in uh, the temple. It's recorded in 1 Chronicles 6, 31 through 38. Um, so anyway, it says the sons of Korah, but in the scriptures, a son could be a great, 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 great grandson, just like Jesus was the son of David. Uh, and there's a very long genealogy uh, between all of that. Uh, but these men, of course, were nothing like their patriarch. They were loyal to the Lord and uh, to the, the leaders that God had appointed. So with that aside, let's look at the, the text itself, the hymn. Verse 1, uh, it describes as we read, the author's desperation, and he uses this, I think it's a powerful figure of speech. How many guys have uh, seen a deer pant? Now, maybe a couple weeks ago was your best chance when it was 112 outside. And, uh, and deer do pant when they go without water for a long time and it's hot. And uh, so he uses this figure of speech of the deer panting for the water brooks. It's not just thirsty. Uh, this, this animal is parched, it's, it's desperate for water, and he compares that uh, to his soul that is desperate for God. 
But then as the psalm continues, it's clear that the heart, the soul, has to be constantly redirected through the psalm, doesn't it? Hey, you'd knock it off. You hope in God. So you, you find that here it seems to, the heart seems to be directed nicely, but then it's here and there. It's all over the place. You know that yourself, don't you? That your heart, your soul can be all over the map, okay? Depending on what's going on in your life. Um, the soul, I don't believe, the heart, does not know on its own where to go when it's in trouble. I don't believe it does. Uh, the heart, I think, is like a vacuum. And whatever is closest to it in front of it, it sucks it up. It takes it in. Um, when it needs God, and it always does, it's, it's vulnerable to embrace whatever is available. And, and we see that with people all the time. I think that uh, the flesh capitalizes on loneliness terribly. And you see people, when, they're in, when they are lonely, they make terrible decisions and um, sad decisions. When it needs God, and it always does, it's vulnerable and it can be detrimental. The heart often only knows that it's desperate, but it lacks the discernment for what is actually good. It's naive. Verse 2, he continues on, he says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God, and he says, when shall I come and appear before God? So as the psalm progresses, we understand that appearing before God means being in the temple or the tabernacle. I'm not sure the era of all this or when this guy lived, did he live during the tabernacle or did he live uh, when the temple was built? I, I have no idea. And scholars debate. Uh, there's no real evidence in the text that would say this was during the first temple period or this was prior to the temple being built during the days of David. But what he is longing for is he's longing for not some, just some prayer time or some individual worship time. He wants to be in the actual presence of God in Jerusalem uh, wherever we might say the ark was, okay, where the, the, the presence of God was. And so with this great anticipation, he longs for the presence of God, and he has no idea when his pilgrimage will be. It just seems so intangible to him at this moment. Now, he's not in Jerusalem. I think that's obvious. And as he explains in a minute, he is someplace in the northern territory of Dan. Uh, he's in the mountains. Uh, it looks to be in a, in a hostile environment, and all he can think about, his mind has wandered back to the courts of the Lord, okay? which is not a bad place for your mind to go, depending on how you wrestle with it. Okay? So why would he do that? Verse 3, he says, My tears have become my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? So the reason he's longing that way is because he's drowning in his grief, and right now he omits the details. He just say, he's saying that it's miserable. And then his, his suffering, his, his emotional pain, uh, has caused him to doubt the closeness of God. Okay? His tears keep saying to him, where is your God? And what that means is, where is he when you so desperately need him? Does he not care for you? How many times have you said that to yourself about God? Or maybe you don't say it to yourself, you say it to God. Where are you? Don't you know that I need you? Don't you know that I'm in pain? Yeah. So here you have it. This is where the, it just comes out, I think, very clearly. You know, circumstance has gripped his soul, and the heart is being led by it. The heart is being directed by his pain, and then it causes him to be confronted with doubt. It's caused him to challenge the reality of God's 
faithfulness. So that's the way that the heart interprets pain. It's, it's like, because I hurt, God doesn't care. Because I hurt, God is not here for me. Because I hurt, God has abandoned me. Or, or worse, God does not exist. God is whatever. I don't know how many people I've encountered over the years that, you know, they come to a Sunday morning service and, you know, the house is packed and the worship is loud and they're all into it and they're on this extreme worship high, if you will. And then the next day they get demoted and the whole world comes to an end. And it's as if all of the realities on Sunday morning are untrue on on Monday afternoon. It's a very difficult way to live. But those who live out of their heart live that way all the time. Okay, they do. And for him, the soul at this moment here in the text has taken the lead. But verse 4, he says, when I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with the multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. When I remember these things, what things? He's talking about the energy of the crowds, the energy of the crowds. He says, when I joined in their procession, as we made our way to the house of God, and there was singing, there was rejoicing, there was worship. It's like going to a concert. Now, I know some of you, you get pretty wild at a concert. I look as stoic as ever. Okay, I went with the youth one year to the winter jam, and all of these Christian bands, and I put my earplugs in. <clears throat> the kids are jumping up and down on the the, uh, the stadium seating, and, and I'm standing there with my hands in my pocket. I'm contemplating. I'm listening. I'm you know I'm taking it in. I just don't express myself that way. And some of the kids are like, "You okay? <laughs> I'm just fine. I just I'm just fine." So in his suffering, he's looking back. It's longing to join those happy days again in Jerusalem when God felt so real. When God felt so real. See, the heart is all about the subjective things, how it felt. Okay? It interprets reality based upon circumstances. When things are going well, God is present, he's good, he's real. And so the soul is full of hope and joy and faith. But then again, when it's difficult, it plummets. God is something else to him. So the soul lives for the buzz. It thrives on hype. But you have to beware of the soul when those things are absent. Verse 5. So now this conversation really begins. I wonder if it was out loud in front of people. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted? That is, why are you complaining within me? And here's the imperative. It's a command. Hope in God. It's not an encouragement. He's not leaving his soul any option. He's saying, soul, this is what we're doing. We are going to hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Yeah, so we have questions, we have commands, both directed at the heart, the soul. As I said earlier, it's it's almost like another person enters the story, uh, but it's one person speaking to the other side of himself. Uh, You know what that's like. Okay, the author here in the text, he knows the source of his pain, He knows why his soul is cast down and complaining, but he's talking to his heart about why it dwells on circumstances rather than the living God who transcends all of our troubles. Why are you doing that? It's just pushing you further and further and further down. Look to God and he will lift you up. Hope in God, praise him. Even though the winds of circumstance blow in the other direction, you have to fix your gaze upon God. You must worship him because he is worthy of worship. You must hope in him because that is the greatest reality. 
in your circumstances, his proximity to you, it has not changed. His faithfulness remains and his goodness endures. You're the only one changing, not him. And I think that what people need to be told, especially when they're in the midst of of suffering, they have to be reminded that placing your hope in God will not take the pain away, but it will banish despair. I don't know anybody that has grieved through their pain in faith and has had despair at the same time. I've never seen it. And despair is for those who are unbelieving. Okay, that's who it's for. The two, sorrow and despair, are a dangerous combination. What I see all the time is that it, it, so, it, it just twists reality to the exclusion of God. And they can't let God in to, to speak to the circumstances. They can't see a glimmer of hope in anything. And it just becomes more and more suffering for them. It's no hope of relief. It's sorrow with no horizon. But for those that have faith through relationship with God, you just, you have this, they have this sense of security about them. No matter what's going on, there's pain, but there's no despair. It hurts, but there's hope. And you see God sustaining them. Verse 6. Now listen to the language here. He says, Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mizar. So in the first line, again, the author recognizes his pain. Okay, it's there, and there's no denying it. His soul is cast down, but he refuses to allow his pain to direct his thoughts and interpret reality. So instead, he says, therefore, it's the same way as saying, because of my sorrows, I will remember you. That's the best reason right now to remember you. It's because of those things right now that I, I must remember you. I need to. So he's not going to listen to his emotions. He's going to look to God. He's going to trust him. And then here, the author fills us in on his, his general location. He mentions Hermon, Mount Hermon. He's somewhere in the, the northern mountain range where Mount Hermon is, is located. Actually, uh, the word Hermon in the Hebrew is plural. So he's in the mountains. He's probably in some military conflict. That seems to be what's going on, perhaps with the Assyrians. Uh, he's probably not on the, the, remaining on the mountain peaks. He's probably somewhere in the foothills near the tributaries that converge in the Jordan River. He mentions that also. So he's in the territory of Dan. But he's far from Jerusalem, uh, where he longs to be. But it doesn't matter where he is. He knows, even though his heart tells him otherwise, that he must set his gaze of faith upon the Almighty. He has to. He has to look beyond the immediate to the transcendent. He must look to God. Verse 7. I'm sure you've heard this quoted in, in songs and poems. It says, Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. Now, there are a wide range of interpretations of what that poetic language means. Some say that it's, it's a positive thing, where something like the, you know, we might say the deep well of man's heart is calling out to something deep about God, his goodness, his mercy, or something, uh, something poetic to that effect. But others are not so romantic uh, about it, but see it as a dramatic explanation of how the author's pain is just continuing to come upon him. That is my conclusion. I think the author is there. He's, he's in the mountains. He's closely observing the, the waterfalls and the rivers uh, where the noise is deafening and their force endures relentlessly. Uh, have you guys ever stood next to or under a massive waterfall? 
How many guys have stood under Snoqualmie? Okay, I know the sign says you're not supposed to, but my brother made me go. <laughs> and my mom's looking at me like, which brother? The older one, of course. So anyway, we, we go. Actually, we didn't see the sign until we came back. I'm telling the truth. And the Bible says where there's no law, there's no transgression. So anyway, we went back there. And it does say that. Paul says that. But he's like 10, 15 feet in front of me. And, and I'm shouting at him at the top of my lungs. He can't hear a thing. And I can hardly hear myself. You know, the water that's pounding on the rocks and crashing into itself is just, it's just so amazing. You know, so amazing. And um, yeah. And then, you know, around it, you have the cliffs, which, from which it's plummeting. You have the canyon surrounding it. And you're kind of just in this echo chamber of the sound. But it's happening so constantly that it's all mixed in and blended. And it's just this, this tremendous roar. And it consumes all your attention. And it, it just kind of blocks everything out. Uh, it gives you a sense of awe as well as insecurity both kind of at the same time. And then, so he's, he's kind of explaining that, this, this sound, the noise, calling out to, its, to the other one. And, when, and then when you stand in the rapids of a rushing river, uh, you know that it's waves, it's, it's billows, they just pound you one after the other without relief. Okay, when, you, when, you're, you know, when you're fishing, fly fishing especially in mountain rivers, the river just doesn't stop for you. Uh, it, it doesn't uh, take a break so that you can, you know, wade out to that hole or whatever. It's just constantly on you. There's no relief. And I, I believe the author is referring to, you know, all the consuming and unrelenting nature of his afflictions from which he just can't find relief. It's just coming upon him one thing after another. You know, normally would say that the sights and the sounds of a waterfall and the river below, it's, you know, it's observed as a thing of beauty and wonder. But I don't think that that is how our author is interpreting life right now. It's grim, it's difficult, it's painful. Okay, his world is upside down, affliction. I think the power of God's creation seems to illustrate what he's enduring. But then we have the rational side of him that is seeing beyond that. He's telling himself to remember God's faithfulness. Verse 8, and here it is. He says, the Lord, he will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And in the night, his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So in spite of being cast down, he knows that God's love is not cast down, but will flow to his account throughout the day as he seeks his face. And then when the night comes, he will do as he said he would do. He'll pour out his soul to God. He will sing to God. And it says that that will be his prayer to the Almighty, praying, or rather singing supplication petition. And that petition goes like this, verse 9 and 10. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? So now the, the conflict has gotten even worse. You know, in his sorrows, his, it says his tears were saying that to him. So he has internally, he's, his, he's saying to himself, where's your God? And now he's getting taunted from the enemy, and they're saying the same thing. Where is your God? Yeah, this is all very soulish, though, as it comes out of his pain and desperation, but it's also very honest about how he feels. His circumstances are getting to him, and what his enemy is saying is wearing him down. 
And so all of this pent-up emotion, it's taking its toll, but then he, he takes it to the Lord, okay, to whom his troubles belong. Do you guys, when you, when you read the Psalms, do you, do you appreciate the honesty that the author has with God, or does it seem irreverent to you? I do both. I mean, sometimes I read David and I'm like, and then I go, how refreshing that he trusts the Lord enough to just let his pain come out the way that it does. And I don't think it's disrespectful. I think it's, it's just desperation. And, you know, we don't think God understands us, so we inform him of what's going on, right? And the psalmist is doing that here. He's, he's just, I think he probably knows that God knows, but it just feels better to say it, just to be certain that God hears him out. Yeah, he wants God to take it. He wants God to have it. And I believe that when we do that while bowing before him, that's really how we regain our footing. If we were just being dishonoring and disrespectful, I don't think we should expect a good result from God. But if we're kneeling before him in our pain, I think that's how we get strong again. As we see in verse 11, again, he says, Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you disquieted and within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. So he goes from talking to God to questioning and commanding his soul once again. That's, that's the nature of circumstances, up and down, up and down. And, and he continues to command himself, to tell himself, you can't, you can't live down here. That's unbelief, and there's just more suffering down there. You must live up here. There's pain up here, but there's no despair up here. You have to dwell here. Okay. And these questions here that he he's, comes to himself with, they're very interrogative. You know, it, it's the same as saying, for what reason would you be so despondent? Uh, what would justify such complaining? You act as if God is not there, as if he's not faithful. He is, so put your hope in him. It's time to praise him. He, he, and then he, I love this statement. He says, he is the help of my countenance. Now, of course, the countenance is a reference to the face, but the countenance is a reflection of what's going on inside of a person. It's just a reflection of how the heart is interpreting and dealing with circumstances. This is why so often, you know, we tell people who are dealing with something painful, troubling, uh, we go to them and we say, what's up? What do you, what do you mean? <laughs> oh, it's written all over that right there. Okay, it's right there. Out of concern, we inquire about their countenance. And this is what I, I think is interesting. And I, one of the reasons I think that Psalm 42 is so valuable in that encounter or in counseling in general. Oftentimes our counsel is misguided by our own emotions. When we see people in that condition, we kind of respond with that same thing. The author's not doing that with himself. He's not being that sweet. Okay. Think about his response to himself. His soul is cast down because of circumstances which he says is absolutely unacceptable. So you go to someone, you say what's up, and they say, they circumstances, and you say, your countenance is unacceptable. Your attitude is inappropriate. Now, I'm not saying that's the way you deal with everything, but consider this man's circumstances. And he says to himself, the way you're behaving, the way you're thinking, is not okay. That needs to be corrected. He's, he's commanding his soul to straighten up, to get it right. Unbelief is not okay. Actually, Hebrews says unbelief is wickedness. We should rebuke people for unbelief. God does. Uh, Jesus did. You remember on the road to Emmaus? That is a fascinating story. And he rebukes those guys because they were slow of heart, not believing all, everything, all the things 
that were written about him in the Old Testament. He rebukes them for unbelief. So the author is saying that affliction is no reason for despondency. He's saying, as he says in the text, this is a reminder that we should direct our attention to God so that despondency does not rule over us. And you know, especially in a smaller crowd, it only takes one person to destroy the mood of everybody else. They walk in the room, sullen countenance, and suddenly everybody in the room is uncomfortable. It's awkward, but we shouldn't be. That might be a good time for some godly correction, exhortation. So the author refuses to let his heart dictate reality because of what's happening. And he's demanding that faith lead the way. It's a great hymn. Now, I have some thoughts about this that I think are necessary for us living in modern Western society, which I personally think is an absolute monstrosity. Okay. But in this hymn, the author identifies with the downcast. Okay. For he's experiencing what they experience as far as existential pain is concerned, but he does not languish with them. That is so important. I know your pain, but I'm not like you. Not not because I'm special, but because of where I've placed my hope. I'm not going to go where you are, because that's far worse. But I know what you're experiencing. I know what you're going through. He's a companion of those who suffer, but he's not a companion of their methods. He, He... would be able to identify with those who are governed by the heart, but he's steered by faith. His suffering takes place within a refuge that cannot be breached. Now, when, when I meet with grieving families for whatever reason, I always pray for them that they would grieve within the confines of their faith. Because grieving is normal. Grieving makes us like God, who, you know, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Well, if he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, what does he think about his people? People need to grieve within the boundaries of faith. I think they become vulnerable to Satan when they don't, or vulnerable to the world. This, this man, whoever he is, um, his experience should be the experience of every believer when they go through suffering. Now, not his circumstances, for they're different, far different than our own, but the way in which he you know, traverses his sorrows, he, he navigates suffering. I want you to just consider the degree of his pain again, real quick, his desperation. The author says... His soul pants for God, verse 1. His soul thirsts for God, verse 2. He weeps through the night, verse 3. Doubts the presence of God, verse 3. Pours out his soul, verse 4. His soul is cast down, verse 5. It's disquieted, verse 5. He feels that God is forgotten in verse 9. He goes about mourning, verse 9. His enemies taunt him, verse 10. That's real suffering. That's real suffering. But the psalmist realizes that, you know, the difference between perception and ultimate reality, his feelings versus the facts, because he longs to be in worship, verse 2. He's commanding himself to hope in God, verse 5, to praise him, verse 5, to remember God, verse 6, he says, therefore, to trust in God, verse 8, and to pray to him, verse 8. And I actually think that verse 6 is the most important part of the whole psalm because of the word therefore. That's so important. The author's saying that because of the way I feel, because of the things that are happening to, it's because of the things being said to me, it's because of the things that are done to me, that there's one thing that I will do. I will remember God from wherever I am, especially when it's not where I want to be. He says, my heart longs for Zion. That's the Lord's dwelling place, where his people worship. They celebrate his presence. He's going on, but, you know, but God is, is no less worthy of my trust and my praise 
when I am here as opposed to Jerusalem where the party is. And party is something Jerusalem could do. I've read Deuteronomy. Okay? So he says, I will use my suffering as a reminder to refocus my faith. And there's also something here for the sake of perspective. You know, in the West, there's so much available to us in regard to therapy. In regard to therapy for anxiety and stress and fear, post-traumatic stress for depression, sorrow, anger, you know, marriage problems, parenting issues, relationships, addictions, codependencies, personality disorders, defiant disorder. We all have that one, born with that. And you know, on the list goes. And, and then within these various fields, there, there are innumerable philosophies and strategies and opinions about what is the best therapy. I think most people have no idea. All you have to do is search each university's philosophy of psychology and the rest, and you realize that they are so divergent and there's so little agreement. Thousands of opinions about what is the best way to help someone experiencing something like anxiety from pharmaceuticals, natural remedies, lifestyle changes, hypnosis, years and years of counseling and all of the rest. People don't understand how unscientific these fields really are. Disagreement rages among the practitioners depending on where they schooled or you know, what their biases are, what religion they are, what religion they are not. And, and, and whether or not these things have any value to humankind is another thing and it's a discussion for another time. I'll say that there's a place for some of it, but that's not my point here. What we do know for certain is that the author of this psalm was not so privy to so much therapy, to none of it, for the things that he was facing, the things that he was enduring. You know, the savage arena of life from his time is really unthinkable to the modern man in Western society. Totally unthinkable. There was no such thing as psychotherapists. There was no anti-anxiety medications, not even for those times when the enemy had surrounded the city and was about to breach the wall. Imagine that, the horrors of that. Or as, as we read, as Habakkuk would say, living in an agrarian society when the fig tree does not blossom and there's no fruit on the vines and the field yield no harvest and the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stall. Let me translate it into the 21st century in our society. It would be equivalent to, do, to, to there being no gasoline at the gas station and none in the tank. No food in the fridge, no food at the grocery store, no cell service, no Wi-Fi, no one answering 911. There is no help nearby and there's no help on the way. You are stranded, helpless, vulnerable, desperate, while you and your family look forward to starvation or worse. And the question is, now what? Where do you turn? What do you do? And so what should be obvious to the believer is, listen, is commonly his last resort or something he never turns to in our day, even though it's an unfathomable resource. Unfathomable. Either the believer today does not know what the Psalms knew, the psalmist knew, and therefore has not experienced what the psalmist experienced, or he simply does not believe what the psalmist believed. Either way, it's not looking good. That's the truth. And this reality breaks my heart when I see people suffering in relationships, in marriages, the loss of loved ones, the loss of a job. The greatest resource of all is substituted for what is less than sufficient. As Jeremiah, through Jeremiah, the Lord complained about the people He says, I'm the fountain of living water, and you have traded me for broken cisterns. How tragic is that? I have all that you need, all that you need. One of the astounding things that Paul says is that 
in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They're not there to be kept from us. They're there for us to possess as we trust and experience and relate to Christ. Through the word of God, we have all things, Peter says, pertaining to life and godliness. You know, by the scriptures, Paul says that the man of God is complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Moses says, this is my life. It's our life. Job had become, he trusted in the word so much that he said, I treasured above my necessary food. There's an experience there, isn't there? He had come to know that through experience. He'd become a practitioner of God's word, a recipient of its blessing, its promises. Through it, he knew God. He knew life. It's crazy. We let everything else lead us rather than God and his word. Suffering, the book of Hebrews says, was intended to fashion us after the image of Christ. But if you do it in unbelief, you miss out on all the benefits of it. That's sad. You know, for the unbeliever, you know, this is understandable and should be expected. But I, I think it's, it's also heartbreaking is that so many Christians in the, the Christian community are not displaying hope through their troubles by trusting God as they're looking on. And they're saying, give me a break. If we're the same, hey, we're just the same. Don't try to feed me this Christianity stuff and that Jesus is all that. If you experience life the same way I do, if there's no touch of the supernatural, you can keep all that to yourself. I think it's part of our light. We, we owe it to God to trust him and praise him. And the world needs our example to see what they're missing. So the author would just simply say, hey, let's just deal with reality. And that's God. So when you have troubles, command yourself to hope in him when you're tempted to despair. He is not changed. His love endures. And we need to live like it. Amen. All right, well, let's stand up and pray. I must have let you out early last week because I went four minutes over tonight. Well, Father, we love you. And the, the psalmist demonstrates that while redeemed, he, he still lives in, a, in some brokenness, just like we do. We've been trashed by sin and the world and the devil. And one day, the whole thing will be completely redeemed. We'll be fully redeemed in your presence. But until then... We carry a lot of brokenness with us. And, and Lord, we just we need to learn that God is in heaven, that he's almighty. Lord, that you care for us and that you have for us what we need to endure this life. So Lord, I pray that you would redirect us, that you would rebuke us, that you would encourage us, but Lord, that you would teach us to walk by faith. And Lord, I pray that as we do that, we would grow and we would experience really the blessedness of being more like Christ who suffered greatly. And the author of Hebrews says he learned obedience through suffering. If he needed it, how much more do we? And so Lord, grant us your grace to walk by faith in our pain, to be an example to those around us, our kids, and Lord, to the unbelieving community who's watching us. So just help us, we pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And um, yeah, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.